I'm Krista Tippett. Today, curiosity over assumptions. Interreligiosity meets a new generation. We'll shine a light on the friendship and shared passion of two 20-something activists, Jewish and Muslim, in the microcosm of Los Angeles. They take on conflict and honesty as part of real relationship. One of the biggest struggles we actually face is also getting people to be honest and not necessarily polite. So first we have to get them to be willing to engage in conflict in a positive and healthy way. And then we have to try to get them to actually like say what's really on their mind. We refuse to be enemies. And we're just going to go into a situation with that in our mind. I refuse to be enemies. And what does it mean to go in to this very heated, contentious situation and really go in with an open hand? This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. This public radio podcast is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. I'm Krista Tippett. From time to time, we take a look at projects that defy the narrative of religiously driven conflict that is the beat of the news. I was captivated a couple of years ago by my guests this hour, two young women named Malka and Aziza, a Jew and a Muslim. I heard them present at a conference on the charged human and even linguistic obstacles of interreligious work that has nothing in common with singing Kumbaya. Or as they put it, they go way beyond bringing people together for hummus and hugs. They take on conflict and honesty as part of real relationship. We'll shine a light on what they are learning in the microcosm of Los Angeles and on a larger universe of risky innovation of which they are part. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, curiosity over assumptions. Interreligiosity meets a new generation. Judaism and Islam, the Muslim leader Ingrid Matson has written, share a similar tradition, that even if the trumpet to signal the end of time is blown and you are holding a seedling in your hand, then you should plant it. In 2007, Matson's Islamic Society of North America and the Union for Reform Judaism embarked on an unprecedented joint initiative, hosting each other's leaders and pondering the specters of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia together. This project and kindred others are controversial within each community and still in early stages. But if they succeed, it may be because the interreligious energy of the 21st century is underpinned by relationships close to the ground. Relationships like the one we'll experience this hour in the friendship and shared passion of Malka Hayafenevesi and Aziza Hassan. They are co-directors of an initiative called Newground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change. Aziza was born in Jordan to a Palestinian Muslim father and an American Christian mother, and she grew up first in Jordan and then in Kansas. While growing up in Jordan for a good 17 years, I was constantly faced with that question, um, what are you, Muslim or Christian? Isn't one better than the other? And even like the questions about, you know, your mom's going to hell, how do you feel about that? Um, and so I spent so much time praying as a child, you know, oh, I want my mom to go to heaven. And then we moved to Kansas, and all of a sudden, like, we had great neighbors, but they all thought that I was going to hell, and my mom got to go to heaven. And, you know, things got flipped, and it was, you know, an answer to my prayers, but it wasn't exactly what I really wanted. Aziz's Jewish colleague, Malka, is a first-generation American whose parents survived World War II and the Holocaust. My father came to the States in 56, like many Hungarians leaving. My mother went from Hungary back to Paris, and they met in Paris in the early 60s and came back to the States together in 64. They were children uh, during the war, and my father was saved by a really uh, amazing woman who manufactured forged documents in the basement of an apartment building in Budapest. And uh, my mother was in Paris with her family, who was Hungarian, because it was somewhat of an easier place to be. Today, Malka directs interfaith programming at the Progressive Jewish Alliance in Los Angeles. Aziza is with the Muslim Public Affairs Council there. 
With new ground, they convene Jews and Muslims who are emerging leaders in many walks of life. Lawyers, educators, filmmakers, doctors. Los Angeles has a fraught recent history of public relationship between Muslims and Jews. Some highly publicized dialogue among local leaders began after the signing of the Oslo Peace Agreement of 1993. But these disintegrated as the Oslo Accords unraveled, and they ended in the aftermath of September 11, 2001. And so I began by asking Malka Hayefenevesi and Aziza Hassan what they are doing differently that can withstand a no less volatile present. What do they think their generation understands that previous generations didn't? Well, for one, um, a lot of the relationships that came together and flourished um, prior to September 11 um, had conditions attached to that relationship. And so some leaders would say, okay, if you denounce so-and-so, then I'll stay at the table. And you can imagine, like, it just kept going back and forth like a ping-pong match, um, denouncing different things. And then finally one side decided they weren't going to denounce, so the other side decided to walk away. Okay. And so what's really sad about that is that they allowed the outside world to completely... Um, control um, their relationships. Right. You know, I, I read in some newspaper reports of that, someone wrote that Muslim-Jewish relationships um, were constantly held hostage to events thousands of miles away, which is, you know, a pretty vivid way to put it. Mm-hmm. And part of what's been happening with Newground is that our organizations, Muslim Public Affairs Council and Progressive Jewish Alliance, really took a pretty, as I would say, chutzpah or very kind of <laughs> risky move to partner together. And with real power in the community said, we're going to do this. And whatever happens, we're making a statement that we're better in this together than apart. I also think that we really focus on the grassroots. And while we really value and respect and learn a tremendous amount from our leaders, you know, the grassroots often felt left out of some of those conversations. Mm -hmm. One thing that we really do is we wrestle with the elephant in the room. And I think that that's really important. And the elephant in the room being the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We don't let the elephant take us hostage. But we really say, what does this mean? But you don't pretend like it's not there. Exactly. And we really wrestle with some of the hard words. We do a lot of work on language because I think that that's where our communities get themselves into trouble, that there's trigger words in this conflict and in this relationship that mean dramatically different things to different people. Right. And I heard the two of you at Ibu Patel's Interfaith Youth Corps convention, uh, I think it was about two years ago, talking about that, just about trigger words and about approaches of language and vocabulary. And, you know, that's very interesting. It's very nitty gritty. Um, So, I mean, give me some examples of what you're talking about. It's very practical, you know, rather than ceremonial, which I think a lot of interfaith work used to be. So picture, a, you know, a table in a somewhat dilapidated community center in Los Angeles with, with lunch paper bags on it that say occupation, Zionism, apartheid, Israel, Palestine, 1967, 1948. And what we have is a group of people that have committed to building relationships with each other and committed to coming back and back to the table even when things are hard. And they write down the first connotation that comes to their mind For about each of what those these words, words. mean. Okay. Yes. And it's all anonymous. And then we make sort of a, a museum to these trigger words where we write it all up on butcher paper as one of the bedrocks okay. <laughs> of our dialogue. <laughs> it's all up on butcher paper all over the room. And people get a chance to look at these words. And I think the shock at those words and how they can mean such dramatically different things to people and how they've heard those words throughout the course of their life. And one particular story was around, we had, I think this is also reflective of the larger community, we had some some fellows that really wrestled with the word Zionism, both Jewish and Muslim fellows that really wrestled with that word and how it had such a diversity of meanings to people Mm. and how so many assumptions were made every time they heard that word in dialogue, if they read it in the newspaper, if they heard it on the radio, and to some Jews in the group, it meant hope, it meant safety. And to some Muslims in the group, it meant imperialism and it meant conquest. And where's the bridge between those two things? Right. And it, then one does it, what does it mean reading it in a newspaper in Los Angeles? And is there always a bridge? I think there's always a bridge. The bridge is about understanding. I don't think the bridge is about resolution. Part of what it means to do authentic dialogue work is that it's messy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> 
And it seems to me from, from where I sit that if there's been kind of an evolution in terms of interfaith work um, or even just the way we approach pluralism, that there was a period when it, when it was so new in American culture, or at least knew that it was out on the surface and more diverse than just, let's say, the you know, presumption maybe different kinds of Christians and add Judaism into that, that it was all about finding our commonalities and it kind of st- often stayed superficial. Um, but what you're doing, you know, when you say that you are looking for bridges, but you're not necessarily looking for resolution and, you know, you're staying with that messy humanity of these tasks, but that also, I think, keeps it anchored close to the ground and to reality, and there's substance and depth there. When we're talking about, like, especially, like, pluralism and just um, difference of opinions, it's the power of the personal that makes such a strong difference. Um, Like, in Malka's example about the word Zionism, like, that was one heated word and actually carried all the way through and past the program. Because at at the same retreat, we had one individual who was really wrestling with the term, and he was really frustrated, and he put a really negative And was he Muslim or Jewish? Yes, he was Muslim. But it really hurt another Jewish participant who chose to hold on to her her opinion. Um, But it wasn't until months later at another session when she felt the courage to bring it up and say, look, what you said really bothered me because Zionism has meant so much to me as a Sephardic Jew. And they were actually finally able to resolve the issue. So sometimes, you know, we create bridges, um, but it takes a while for people Uh, to to even be willing to exchange. To walk up to them or even think about walking across, right? (laughs) Exactly. Uh What's important about that, too, is that we really believe that conflict is actually really healthy. Mm-hmm. It's also, you know, can be very destructive and painful, but it's also really healthy in terms of moving people and relationships and societies forward. You know, sometimes what is so simple is hard to get at. I mean, it's true in a marriage where two people love each other and have mm. decided to spend their lives together that if they can't fight well, if they don't know how to disagree, um, that has a bad effect on the relationship. So, I mean, there's a way in which you're learning some things that are just really basic to human relationship, but there has been this crazy expectation of harmony where there's real difference. One of the biggest struggles we actually face um, in terms of inside the circle of the program is also getting people to be honest and not necessarily polite. So (laughs) first we have to get them to be willing to engage in conflict in a positive and healthy way. And then we have to try to get them to actually like say what's really on their mind. Because they, after, you know, they start building these relationships, they get really excited. Hey, we're getting along. I really like this person. And then they don't want to hurt each other. And, but what they don't understand is that, you know, sometimes you have to be direct in order to really um, have a solid relationship. And it's, it's our job, really, to push them to that, to that corner. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, we're shining a light on a new generation of Jewish-Muslim relationship through the friendship and shared passion of Malka Haya Fenevesi and Aziza Hassan of Los Angeles. Their joint work with New Ground is in its third year. Over 10 months, the people in their fellows program come to know each other, to grapple openly with their differences, to engage in joint community service, and to take this experience back into disparate lives, communities, and professions. Arash Nematolahi was a fellow in the program's first year. His younger brother, Ramin, followed him the next. And here's part of a conversation they shared about those experiences with our colleagues at the StoryCorps project. It's like news headline, Muslims and Jews go in a room, they don't kill each other. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's huge. Well, you know what's funny? The reason I joined it, the 2007 uh, group of Newgrounds, was um, with my identity. I was getting tired of only associating myself with Iranian Muslims or Muslims. I, was, I wanted to step outside of that. But I didn't realize I would see certain things that, for some reason, I couldn't see before. For example, I, I saw this emotion amongst some, some of the participants or the Jewish community is that they are genuinely afraid of being annihilated. They're genuinely afraid 
of being annihilated, or that the state of Israel is going to be annihilated. And to somebody like me, I guess to Muslims, that's just ridiculous. And because Israel is a superpower, but they really believe Ahmadinejad whenever he's, he rants and raves. And that was really interesting for me because I really didn't sense that. I always heard them on news and radio talk about it, but it never really sunk in. And then the other thing was that Jews are concerned about the state and plight of Palestinians. I mean, they they haven't di- divorced themselves or they haven't done a frontal lobotomy on their emotions when it comes to Palestinians. But I think that fear they have of annihilation prevents them from stepping forward and saying what's happening to the Palestinians is wrong. And that was very eye-opening for me, you know? Yeah, I, I think that the interesting thing is, I, I mean, that the whole uh, notion of, you know, the the nails that's sticking out gets the hammer, whatever that, that saying is, you know, it's a, kind of the same way. The people who you see in the news, the people who you hear about all your... Or the fringes, you know, that's what makes news. So you hear about Israelis who are like, no, we're not going to live with Palestinians. We have to destroy our Palestinians, all this stuff. You hear about Palestinians who say we have to destroy all uh, Israelis and get rid of them and push them to the sea. You hear all this stuff, but there's all this uh, people in the middle who you just don't hear because they don't make the news. That doesn't catch the news, you know? At the end of the day, killing innocent people on both sides it's still wrong, and it doesn't matter how you justify it, if it's defense or if offense or they did it first or we did it last. But don't you think we came to a place already that killing itself is just wrong as humans? I don't think we're there yet. You don't think so? I think we're far, far away from that. I think we still justify murder different ways. I mean, the state justifies murder by execution. People justify it through self-defense. So... There's that quote that I told you about, the Aristotle quote about, like, happiness being the point of life and, like, everything should point to that. And I really think, um, you know, it's this not this uh, instant gratification kind of happiness, you know, just coming back from Vegas. That's what Vegas is. And Vegas is just instant. Everything's instant. But it's this long-term happiness. And I think we're, as humans, we're, like, diverging from that happiness. Yeah. I think happiness comes through struggle. And we, we don't want to struggle in a lot of instances. We don't want to have to put ourselves to a test, um, putting our identity to a test, putting our courage to a test, whatever it is. You have to be willing to find yourself in a situation where you don't know the answer, where you're lost. You have to admit that you're lost, and that's not easy. So I, I, I'm hopeful. I think people, everybody will find their way. That's good. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. I enjoy being your brother. <laughs> I enjoy being your older brother. I asked my guests Malka Hayafenevesi and Aziza Hassan for an example of how they and the fellows in their program become, as they say, a window into the experiences of the other. We, um, to give the most recent example, we decided to do, this is actually from the winter around the conflict in Gaza and southern Israel. I think that our communities were so deeply in pain and so deeply in conflict with each other. And I would just call Aziza and I would say, so tell me, what did this sound like to Muslim ears? You mean hearing the news today from Israel, from Gaza? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And also just to be able to reach out, I think, is critically, critically important. Right. You know, because I was I was going to say um, there's a certain sort of an internal discipline, not just a spiritual discipline, but a, like a civic discipline in being willing to ask that kind of question and really wanting to hear the answer. You know what I'm saying? Really be open to listening to the answer. Yeah, because oftentimes we only want to, to speak and we don't actually want to hear mm-hmm. the answer. We're, we're not willing to really face the honest truth. I think that there's a certain courage in being able to ask the questions. We try to say that it's the curiosity over assumptions. Right. Curiosity itself is a virtue. I like that. I, mm-hmm. I think curiosity is so important and I think that it can be you know, it's so complicated for a lot of people to figure out how to be a Muslim or a Jew in America today that if we can go with curiosity over fear and curiosity over assumptions mm-hmm. and take that moment to really reach out to, to somebody else and 
and say, what does this mean to you? And how does this feel when this happens? And I heard this politician say this, or I read this thing on a blog. And what does it mean? I feel that the word interfaith or the adjective interfaith, even like the word pluralism, these words are themselves are kind of safe and benign and maybe even boring. Um, mm. When in fact, when people really have their hands and lives dug into this stuff, as you do, it's anything but. I mean, it's very dramatic. It's galvanizing. It's changing human life. Do you think about that, that problem of, um, of the words themselves getting in the way of communicating to the larger society what the power of this is? Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because when we first started the program, that's how I would describe it. I would say, you know, this is an interfaith dialogue group and it just wasn't deep enough. Yeah. And we feel like I've been there, done that. I don't right. need to like do hugs and, and hummus. If, if anything, I want to be part of something that's real. Um, and so to be able to finally like understand the complexity beneath the surface um, and, and the importance of having honest conversations that deal with issues like identity and, and diversity of opinion and um, gender um, and so many other things. I also think a lot about what one of our fellows, who's actually a rabbinical student right now, said to me. And he said, I really feel like new ground is about what it means to be Muslim and Jewish in America today. Mm, mm-hmm. And so that's not as short as pluralism or interfaith, but I think there's something about it that really covers what we do. As we were producing this program, my producers and I found ourselves wanting to hear from some of the Newground Fellows firsthand. Through this StoryCorps project, we discovered four pairs of participants who'd interviewed each other. They posed challenging questions and also shared lighthearted moments, sometimes filled with revelation, sometimes verging on awkward and tense. On SOF Observed, our staff blog, we've isolated portions of these exchanges that reveal, rather than describe, the messiness and potential redemption of interreligious encounter. Look for all these links at speakingoffaith.org. And we'd like to hear from you. What are you aware of or involved in in your immediate world? More importantly, tell us about a surprising or revealing moment that helped change the way you think about the other. Share your reflection, download free MP3s, and much more, all at speakingoffaith.org. After a short break, more from Aziza and Malka, including the paradox that in interreligious work, encountering the other means coming to know oneself and one's own tradition in unexpected ways. I remember a fellow saying to me, a Jewish fellow saying, I definitely would never have met these Muslims, but let me tell you, I definitely wouldn't have ever met these Jews. (laughs) I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness, online at loveandforgive.org. And by Gather.com, the social network with substance where people discuss what matters. People are talking about what they believe at Gather.com. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, curiosity over assumptions. Interreligiosity meets a new generation. My guests, Malka Hayafenavesi and Aziza Hassan, are innovators and leaders in Muslim-Jewish encounter in Los Angeles. Malka is based at the Progressive Jewish Alliance and Aziza at the Muslim Public Affairs Council, and together they co-direct a program called Newground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change. The centerpiece of Newground is a fellows program where participants, an equal mix of around 20 Jews and Muslims, come to know each other and work in their community together over 10 months. 
Malka and Aziza have been describing how their approach differs from previous eras of interreligious work. They don't immediately leap to commonalities. They understand conflict as part of relationship, any relationship. And they use the word curiosity more than they use the word dialogue. It seems to me curiosity um, also is connected to valuing or to an openness and care for the other which is there at the root of all three of the monotheistic traditions, which is really a value that our world needs. But I, and I think that, say, in the work the two of you are doing, um, you are really cultivating that virtue. Um, I think, you know, unfortunately, it's not what the three traditions are best known for, <laughs> right? It's certainly mm-hmm. not if you, just, if you just judge that by news headlines. But it's, it is there certainly at the core of Judaism and Islam. Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, when we, we quote several verses in the course of our, we have community iftars and, and in our sessions. And you're right, like one of the, the Quranic verses is, um, we have made of you nations and tribes so that you may get to know one another. Right. And then another verse after that says that um, in order to truly be a believer, you have to be willing to engage in diversity and pluralism and that that is the true sign. Um, and so and that's really what we drive home as part of the program. Mm-hmm. And Malka, what are you what are your kind conno- of the Jewish connotations that are attached to that idea of the other? I, I think of a lot of things, both in terms of text, but I also think historically what the Jewish people's relationships have been to the other. And I think of the woman who was another, who was a Christian woman in the basement of an apartment building in Budapest who, you know, manufactured 3,000 or so fake, fake documents for to save Jews. Including your and father. Thank God, including my father and mm-hmm. my grandmother and how how blessed and lucky that is. So I think of that sort of relationship to the other, and I think that otherness and thinking about the well-being of the other in addition to the well-being of your of yourself is is huge. And I think that the idea, again, of, of how you sit at a table together with people who are vastly different than you, and I, I think of some conversations I've had with rabbis through the course of doing this work and how some of them who um, have said to me that this is the work that they did in the 70s and 80s between Jews and the African-American community. Mm-hmm. And how this is sort of the evolving other as we as as life and time moves on and politics shifts and society shifts in different ways that we have to keep on building relationships across divides. Right, that's interesting. We did, we did a program on Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, mm-hmm. last year and, and a piece of the conversation was that, you know, his... He had such a very sophisticated theology of um, and involvement with outreach to Christians, and you know, just speculating about how involved he might be and what what his voice would add to this challenge of Muslim Jewish relationships in the twenty first century. It's interesting to think about that. It is. It's interesting to think there's been some work being done on the seder that never happened. That um, King was invited to Heschel's house for a Passover right. seder. Yeah. And what what would that Seder have looked like then? And what would that Seder, I, I imagine... And who would be I, invited today? <laughs> exactly. Who yeah. would, I think, I think it would be fantastic Seder if it happened today. I mm-hmm. think there would be a, a multitude of people there. Heschel's a real, a real prophet. Yeah. So you've both been involved, um, to some extent, I believe, in a project. I think it's very interesting, and it's going to be fascinating to see it unfold, this twinning project. Um and I want to talk about that, but you know, before I get into it, I want to ask you, Aziza. I so I was looking at an introduction to this peacemaking initiative. It was a Muslim document, and you know, right in the first few paragraphs, um, there is a discussion of what peace means in Islam, and a statement: um, "A true Muslim does not commit acts of violence, either for the spread of Islam or for the purpose of achieving power in the name of Islam." I know that um, all the conversation partners, the Muslim conversation partners I've had these past years, you know, people feel that's something you have to say. There's this, there's this statement of differentiating yourself from this violence that's been done in the name of Islam. 
and I just want to ask you about that because I think that must also enter into the kinds of dialogues that the two of you are involved in. And, you know, do you, do you worry, Aziza, that you will forever have to preface every act <laughs> and every, every good work and position paper, you know, with this kind of statement? Talk to me about having that as a reality. You know, I do. I it's it's definitely a struggle, um, but something that I deem none of the less essential because without saying it, it seems like we can't really move on to getting into the real issues that are on the table. Um, and, and I don't want to discredit um, the fear that comes behind um, and the reasons why we have to actually make those statements. Mm-hmm. Tell me, how old were you real. in, in two thousand one? How old were you? I was 21. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so I, I remember because my TV was set as my alarm, and my TV turned on the very moment, like when the the, the planes were crashing into the towers, mm. and it was just it was I, I felt like every, my life was a daze ever since I woke up that morning, mm. at least for a good chunk of time, um, and it was it was definitely a scary time because you know my mom though she was Christian like taught at a Muslim school, and so for Weeks, we were constantly worried about um, boxes that were left randomly outside the mosque, whether or not they were going to be blown up, um, and just living in that in that fear, um, just from a Muslim kind of story mm-hmm. or perspective. Um, and so, I I recognize that um, you know people are scared, and if people are scared, um, then we need to be able to speak to those fears. And so that's why we need to make these statements at the beginning of every conversation okay. by saying, like, look, we we stand for justice, and we will hold everyone to that same standard, no matter whether they're um, Muslim or, or from any other religion. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of hearing you say that you don't consider it, a, feel it as a burden so much as just a reality. Yeah, I mean, it's a frustrating reality, but one that exists nonetheless, and who am I to discredit someone else's fear? I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, curiosity over assumptions. We're shining a light on a new generation of Muslim-Jewish interreligious innovation through the work of Malka Hayafenevesi and Aziza Hassan in Los Angeles. The Twinnings Project just mentioned is pairing mosques and synagogues in major cities, first in North America and next in Europe, an initiative launched after a first-ever National Summit of Rabbis and Imams in 2007. That same year, the presidents of the Union for Reform Judaism, or the URJ, and of the Islamic Society of North America, known in short as ISNA, made unprecedented speeches to standing ovations at each other's annual conventions. When he spoke before ISNA, URJ President Rabbi Eric Yaffe frankly named Jewish concern over anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial within global Islam. He also said, the time has come to put aside what the media says is wrong with Islam and to hear from Muslims themselves what is right with Islam. At his own convention later that year, Rabbi Yaffe declared that the experience of anti-Semitism can impart Jews with a particular compassion for Muslims who faced generalized animosity in the post-9-11 world. I asked Malka Hayafenevesi and Aziza Hassan how they and their friends and colleagues take in such words. I, I very much was inspired by Rabbi Yaffe and Ingrid Madsen speaking mm-hmm. at those conventions. I think that that's so, such a huge outreached hand where it sometimes there there hasn't been that hand. And I think that that's really beautiful. And I, I think this connects to ideas of otherness, that our experience, you know, as Jews coming to this country at different points through history and that experience of trying to build our, build our lives and our institutions definitely gives us perspective and experience that can be, you know, helpful in any way to other communities like the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's essential to recognize um you know the that what Rabbi Yafi and so many others are doing is is 
it's cutting edge in the sense of like not many people agree with it right um and you know for him to say you know anti-semitism and islamophobia are equally like wrong um is a huge thing especially since he has a lot of heat on him from yes. so many other organizations um and i mean he's not the only one i mean you have you know with the twinnings project it's brought all sorts of heat um and at the same time you know we welcome the heat because at least we're having the conversation okay um but at the same time like you know people are speaking out but it's taking a lot and they need support from you know all over to let them know that you know people do indeed like not only agree but are willing to to back them up now i was looking i believe at bios of some of your fellows and i think what struck me um is also something that struck me at that um event of the interfaith youth corps where i first met the two of you um which is that the people who are involved are not, for the most part, going to become religious leaders. They're not training to be clergy people, right? They are. I mean, some of them are, but they are um, in IT and wealth management and entertainment and law and engineering. And I think something else that is distinguishing the work your generation is doing is it's it's not about religion or religious identity in a compartment. It's about mm-hmm. these things finding a fuller expression in every sphere of life, a fuller and healthier expression. Is, would, is, would you agree with that, or how do you see I, that? We really make an effort to to mirror the diversity of our communities in mm-hmm. the diversity of our fellows. So we have, you know, a few who are training to be clergy, but not at all a majority. Mm-hmm. And the rest, as you said, doctors, lawyers, people in the financial industry, teachers, graduate students, and also, you know, f- people from all who ethnically are, you know, Pakistani or Indian or or from different countries in the Arab world, converts, Jews that are from, you know, Sephardic Jews, Ashkenazic Jews, people from a very wide variety. Okay. And I think these are the people that while they might not be perf- while it might not be their main profession, these are the people that are sitting on boards and advisory councils of major Muslim and Jewish institutions. And these are the people that are going to be helping really shape the conversation. One of the most exciting events for me of the past few months, um, and excuse me if I'm getting the timing wrong, but we had a fellow who was, went to the UN Conference on Racism in Geneva. And um, one of the things that we, him and I spoke a lot about was this idea which comes from an Israeli peace activist is we refuse to be enemies. And we're just going to go into a situation with that in our mind. Mm. I refuse to be enemies. And what does it mean to go in to this very heated, contentious situation and really go in with an open hand? And does not, but does not mean enemies um, not necessarily imply that there's not still conflict? I think that's it. I think there's still conflict, but there's a willingness to hear and there's a willingness to understand and there's a willingness just to sit at the table across from each other and i think that that from what i from what i read and heard about the the reports from durban that was very hard for people to do not just to mm. yell across mm. the room but to actually but say <laughs> let's let's sit down together absolutely because if we really want them to be living their faith and like malka said mirror the community that they're actually living in it was really essential to have a diverse group of people so whether it was professionally or even religiously right. like right. we very intentionally made sure that we had modern orthodox jews with conservative and reform in addition to um uh, not only Sunni, Shia, but also Ismaili, um, and you know, and and Sufi, so that they can go back into those communities and bring their new relationships, um, so that this becomes part of a, a much larger public conversation. And I think that speaks to the intra-faith work that mm-hmm. we do, which is something that's often left out of the the interfaith world is what right. does it mean to really talk to people of the same religion? I remember a fellow saying to me, I, a Jewish fellow saying, I definitely would never have met these Muslims, but let me tell you, I definitely wouldn't have ever met these Jews. <laughs> and that you, right. even in our... <laughs> so some of the encounter and the curiosity ends up also being with the people in the group of their own faith, of their own tradition. Oh, um, definitely. Um Again, going back to the butcher paper in a community in a community center in Los Angeles, we explored the question together of what do you feel that those of the other faith most need to know about your faith? And the old, you know, the old saying is three Jews, you know, 30 opinions. And <laughs> right. The, the fellow's first question to me was, 
oh, we don't have to agree, do we? And I said, no, of course not. But you need to explain why you don't, you know, you need to explain it. It can't just be, oh, we don't agree, so we don't even need to talk right. to each other because I'm, I, I practice this way and you don't practice at all, according to my definition. And what they ended up doing on this big, this big sheet of paper, they put a big circle in the middle that said Jew. Hmm. And off of that, they each kind of claimed their own corner and on one on one end there was Torah, Israel, family, God. On another end, Sandy Koufax, Woody Allen, bagels. <laughs> uh, you know, on another end there was um, there was a map of Israel that said falafel, kibbutz, work. And I have to say it was it was very fun, but there was definitely some nail biting about how are we gonna. How are we going to talk about these differences? How, yes. Do you remember the Muslim uh, uh, counterpart to that? Oh, yes. Like, um, like this is actually one of the most memorable sessions, okay. no matter what group we do it with. <laughs> because the Muslims initially start with the concept of unity. They're like, we have to provide a united narrative on exactly how to present Islam. Right. And they're like, because we cannot be not united. And they... Uh, and usually each group always have to, has to overcome that first before they can actually start writing. Um, and so they, they try to hash it out back and forth and back and forth. And um, it's, it's really an eye-opening experience because they realize they're like, wow, how are we supposed to talk to um, Jews about like Israel, Palestine and gender and all this other stuff? Well, we can't even agree on how to present our own religion. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that they see the religion in so many different lights... So I think that this story you've just told illustrates something that one of you said early on in our conversation that I think a lot of people wouldn't understand. It's something else that gets hidden by these terms interfaith, which is you said that someone who came out of your program said, really, this is about what it means to be Muslim, what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Because mm -hmm. there is this paradox of interfaith work when it's really profound that not only do people come to know the other they get to know themselves better. Definitely for a lot of our Jewish fellows, this was a real surprise that they came in because they thought, oh, I want to talk about politics <laughs> with the Muslim community. I want to do this. And I can't tell you how many of them I see and say, so I joined a synagogue. <laughs> or I've been celebrating Shabbat at home now. Having sort of changed since the days of being um, being more of a more of a hardcore activist, I think that the solutions to these complex, multi-layered problems that we're facing locally and domestically and internationally right now are very creative and very interdisciplinary. Hmm. That we need everybody to be there at the table. I mean, not everybody, but yeah. I think we need both <laughs> ends mm -hmm. and people from the middle. You know, um, I, I think uh, Ali Abu Awad, um, an individual you've had on your show yes, before, mm -hmm. um, said said it really well. And he didn't. I, w I would substitute a word. It's not about being right. Um, it's about being honest. And I would substitute right. the word truth for right, because um, if it's always about being right or about being on the side of well, this is the truth and that's it. Um, then we're really not ever going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it's about being honest with each, with ourselves and with each other and to truly evolve to a genuine place of where respect can exist and flourish. Um, this is something that I really struggled with for a long time as a child. Just, you know, you know, do I... Could I really respect my mother if I really thought that mm, right. she was going to be going to hell all the time? Your Christian um, mother, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and I finally, finally, like after several years, came to a place where I can really respect her as an individual um, for her faith um, and, and respect the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And so it's not about the exclusivist theology that I so like held on to so tightly when I was younger. But it I, was it's more also about not about giving up 
a strong identity of your own. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. You don't have to give up who you are in order to embrace somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's actually probably one of the strongest lessons we've learned through Newground is that you don't have to be giving up anything about being Palestinian or about being Muslim in order to engage in this conflict. Instead, mm-hmm. it's actually about being able to share your identity in a very succinct and, and truthful way. Um, so that you can both grow together as a group with with the other people at the table. How do you, um, how do the two of you think about impact and why your work matters? I mean, uh, it's hard now to see at a global level, at a geopolitical level, how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, can or will be resolved. It's there's a new crisis w- with Iran. Um, that's on the mind of both of your communities. Um, you know, do you imagine that what you're doing in Los Angeles with 10 or 20 people at a time um, might in some way affect that? Or does, does that not matter? Is that not the point? I mean, how do you think about that? I mean, ultimately, our, our fates are really intertwined. I mean, our fates are intertwined. Yeah. Um, whether <laughs> it's here or there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, we, we really have to be paying attention to what's going on everywhere because um, we're really impacted. Um, and if, we, if we're really going to be able to make change, then we have to start in our own backyard. Um, and like Maka said earlier, I mean, these are, are young leaders in their own right. They, they're already leaders before they get to us. Right. And so they're, they're sitting on boards of institutions. They're, they're active citizens. Um, and the ripples, uh, you know, you start them small, but then they grow much larger and, and they have a much bigger impact. And because American Muslims and American Jews have a strong uh, stake, really, in, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict... Um, I would, we would dare to say that, that yes, um, it would definitely influence at least the conversation in many different ways, especially in terms of like how money is delivered to different places, like whether people are active in different organizations. Mm. I go back to the interdependence that I learned as a child so strongly and that, you know, our diaspora communities greatly influence what happens in our, in our you know, in our quote, home countries around right. the world. And I think that um, there's a hearts and minds element to Newground, which I think is very powerful in terms of whether it's about reading the newspaper and seeing an article about something that happened in a Palestinian village and, you know, picking up the phone and calling a Newgrounder and saying, did this affect your family? What does this mean? Or even if you're a little bit shy and you're not picking up the phone, you read the article with more compassionate eyes. You have you have faces and voices to attach to You have to faces that. and voices. And I think that the other piece is that, yes, the connection to the, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also recognizing the ethnic diversity that we have fellows that care deeply about Kashmir mm-hmm. and about issues mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. India and Pakistan. Right. And we have a lot of fellows who care deeply um, about Iran, and we have fellows who are invested in redevelopment in Eastern and Central Europe. And that I think that goes back to the notion of what it means to be Muslim and Jewish is in America and in the world today is that we have heartstrings spread all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that understanding what those connections are and building off them, I think, is very, very important. And I also think that the the events that happen, whether it be in Iraq or whether it be in Israel and Palestine, it really brings people into the circle. Right. They want to engage in something that's local, that's hopeful, that has that ripple effect, and that helps them understand themselves better hmm. and helps them thus understand the world better. Malka Haya Fenevesi and Aziza Hassan co-direct Newground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change based in Los Angeles. Malka is director of interfaith programming at the Progressive Jewish Alliance, and Aziza is director of interfaith relations at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. In the 
past several years, I've interviewed an exhilarating range of people who are engaging with the religious other in the most difficult and unlikely of circumstances and on many levels, personally, communally, institutionally. One of my most memorable experiences, and one which Aziza mentioned earlier, was sitting down with Ali Abu Awad, a Palestinian who lost his brother at the hands of an Israeli soldier, and his friend and comrade, Robi Damlin, an Israeli whose son was killed by a Palestinian sniper. They're part of a web of relationship across the Israeli-Palestinian divide that seems unimaginable given the headlines. Find that program, which we called No More Taking Sides, and other like-minded programs on Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and Ibu Patel's globally ambitious Interfaith Youth Corps. All of that on our website, speakingoffaith.org. And we'd also like to hear how your life and experience might suggest new concrete and perhaps more spacious possibilities for our cultural imagination about the terms interfaith and interreligious. Share your experiences and insights through the reflection link on our homepage, speakingoffaith.org. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Scheck, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Mark Sanchez. Our online editor is Trent Gillis, with web producer Andrew Dayton. Special thanks this week to StoryCorps. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness, online at loveandforgive.org. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, one of the great religious minds of the 20th century, the late historian Yaroslav Pelikan, who devoted his life to exploring the modern vitality of ancient creeds and doctrines. Please join us. American Public Media.